Well, it is a distinct privilege and honor to open uh, the Word of God before you this evening. Um, Steve asked me a number of weeks ago if I'd be willing to uh, take a Sunday night, and since I consider Sunday nights to be the very best time in this pulpit, I was very eager to say yes, and so I'm thankful for the opportunity uh, to minister to you. And I pray that um, God's Word would minister grace in your life and peace in your life. Open up to the letter to the Philippians and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul writes this from prison. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Our gracious Master and our God, we seek you to assist us to proclaim the glories of your name and your praises in song, and we seek your assistance now to proclaim the the greatness of your word in our hearts. Take our hearts and seal them. Strengthen them and bring peace to them, wherever they are. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We sang this song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and I want to remind you of the chorus. Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed. Thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord unto me. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Is God's faithfulness to you great? Can you say like that song says, all I need, I have. That's a nice little way of saying or asking the question, are you content in all that you have right now? And I'm not talking about contentment when life is good, when you're abounding. I'm talking about contentment when times are tough, when life is hard and humbling to you, when everything seems to be going wrong. Instead of right, what does Christian joy, what does Christian sufficiency, what does Christian contentment look like? Do you have it? To answer that question, I I want to call on a, a, a few friends that you should meet to teach you about Christian contentment. The first group of friends that you must meet this evening is the church of Philippi. Steve was gracious to read the origin story, if you want to put it in superhero terms. I like to refer to this church as, with a nickname. This is the, the church of the unexpected joy. The church of the unexpected joy. How did this church come into existence? We, we heard about it. It's because of an unexpected ministry move. 
The Lord Jesus said no to Paul's great plans and ministry ideas for Asia Minor. And he redirected Paul to Macedonia, modern-day Greece, Europe, really. God closed the door to open another one. We, we read this in Acts 16, but let me remind you of Acts 16, 6. And they went through the region of uh, Phagira and Galatia, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and, and when they had come to Messiah, uh, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing through Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They came into existence because of an unexpected ministry move. And, and why did Paul uh, go to jail while he was in Philippi? Well, Acts 16, 23 through 25 told us because there were a few unexpected members of the Philippian church that needed to hear the gospel in the prison. And they needed to hear the gospel to be saved, to join the church of God. It was the church of the unexpected, the unexpected joy. There's someone else I want you to meet. It is the Apostle Paul himself. He is now writing this letter probably from house arrest in Rome, whatever that situation looked like. What was his situation exactly? He was at the tail end of a four-year sort of prison sentence that we kind of saw begin in Acts 28. The church of the Philippians had heard about his situation and had uh, sent him a substantial aid package. We know it was actual aid, because when you get to Philippians 4, you see that he is thanking them for money and financial provision. And now Paul writes to them to thank them for their gift, to share with them updates of his situation and those who are with him, like Epaphroditus, who got... uh, Uh, deathly ill while doing ministry to Paul. And Paul also wants to exhort them to participate with him and continue to participate with him in the gospel ministry. This is basically the thrust of the letter to the Philippians. And and what would Paul's answer be to the question, so Paul, why are you in prison this time? What's going on now? Why are you here, Paul? Well, as Philippians 1 would tell us, it's because there are some more unexpected members of the Church of Jesus Christ that need to hear the gospel that just happen to be members of Caesar's household. That's why Paul's in jail. Because there are people here in this situation, in this circumstance that need to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ question for you what would it be like to live a life that thinks like that that's why i'm here because apparently jesus has something for me to do that involves gospel advance that is why i am not working at that job but working at this job that is why we're not on district boulevard but over on white lane because jesus has some ambitions for us and our church in preaching the good news of jesus christ what it would what would it be like though to live every day of your life that way you would be an example of the unexpected christian The unexpected Christian who is content in all circumstances. And that's what we want to be. If you haven't figured it out yet, I plan, Lord willing, to kind of give you a brief overview of the letter to the Philippians. And I hope as we progress through it, 
rapidly and skipping all of your favorite verses, to kind of begin to form a depiction and a description of this thing called Christian contentment that we see in Philippians 4.12. And I believe, actually, it is very helpful for us to begin at the beginning. That makes sense to me. Makes sense to you, hopefully, as well. But I find that Paul's opening prayer to the Philippians and his kind of prayer report and how he prays for them is very instructive for kind of helping us formulate a framework for how we approach and understand the letter itself. So I want to read for you all of Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Please read with me. Paul says this to the church at Philippi, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. For it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. Paul's prayer here is very simple. It is this, that the Lord Jesus would complete the work of sanctification in them. That He would complete them. How? How would the Lord Jesus complete the Philippian believers? How does the Lord Jesus complete the work of sanctification in you? through the continued transformation and renewal of the mind and the heart in a very specific way. How does Jesus bring about you to spiritual completion? Verses 9 through 11 tell us specifically, through the increase, number one, of a wise love in you. A wise love. I get this this description from Mark Dever, verse 9, a wise love. This, isn't, this is a, not just a love to increase, but this is a love to increase with all knowledge and discernment. That's what Paul is praying for. We, we don't just need love. Look at this. We, we need love that has guide rails of truth on it. We need the ability to separate and distinguish. We need spiritual discernment in our love. To distinguish true love from false one. And watch this. Wise love, this kind of wise love produces something in your life. Wise love produces right choices, we are told in verse 10. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. Think about it this way. When your love is foolish, you make foolish choices. And your life is a foolish life. But when your life is wise, you make wise choices and you live a wise life that prefers wise ways, wise paths. Wise love produces a wise life. Right choices. And right choices result in complete fruitfulness in your life. Your life will bring complete glory to Christ, we're told, in verse 11. And we can conclude from that, your life will also bring you complete joy to yourself as well. Because you were made to bring glory to God. Your life will look increasingly like a life that is separated from sin. 
And your life will produce a harvest of righteousness in every season. You're constantly producing fruit. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. This isn't just a harvest at the day of Christ, but it seems to be a harvest of righteousness flourishing in every way, pressing up against that final day of Christ. You're more and more fruitful as the day of Christ draws near. But what does a wise love look like? Well, it means you walk worthy of the gospel. It means you live a life that participates in gospel ministry with joy. This is really what Paul is seeking from them. He wants them to be partners with him in the gospel and walk worthy in it. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's his desire for them. That's his plea for them. Have a life that participates and is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ministry of it. And I believe this is also what Paul kind of spells out for us with the rest of the letter. He describes what a wise love looks like. He puts railings around it so we can understand it. And in doing so, he also also helps us to understand what it looks like to have true Christian contentment. So this is what I want to do here tonight. I want to describe wise love. I want to describe it through the lens of the letter to the Philippians. We're going to look at it through a series of descriptions. Description number one, a wise love means you have circumstantial joy. Number two, a wise love means you have a humble focus. Number three, a wise love means you have spiritual maturity, security. Number four, and finally, a wise love means you have situational sufficiency. That is the depiction and description of a wise love. Let's look at it together in detail. A wise love means, number one, you have circumstantial joy. Joy is a key term here to the letter. It it occurs 16 times, either in joy or rejoicing. I wouldn't actually put it as the sole theme, though. I would prefer a theme like joyful gospel participation. That's what I would see Philippians truly being, Paul appealing to them for participation in the gospel. But there's this component of joy that is just throughout the letter to the Philippians. It's very interesting as well when you consider who is writing this letter. It's, it's a man in chains, at least chained to one Roman guard at all times. And it's probably appropriate for us to um, compare joy to the common notion of happiness. Happiness is a state that is highly unstable and combustible, and it depends completely on what your circumstances are. I'm happy because life is good. I am unhappy because life is bad. But joy is different than that. That is the picture that we see described by Paul of what joy is. Uh, joy is not dependent on your environment. Uh, joy is something that stands completely above your circumstances. For example, look at Philippians Philippians 3, uh, 1 3. One, three. I thank my God in all my remembrance, always in every prayer of mine, uh, making all of my prayer with joy. Notice, every single time he prays for the Philippians, it is with joy. Or, look over in verses 18. Paul is describing some people that have been unkind to him, and how some people have used his imprisonment to mock him, uh, to preach the gospel despite him. And what does he say in verse 18? What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Or look over at chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Examine the joy of Paul. It is above his circumstances indeed. It is something that persists. 
in dungeons, in chains, uh, with divisions around you, with opposition against you, with persecution on you. And it persists even in need, as we saw in 4.12. And the reason for this is you can rejoice because your situation is ultimately dependent on the circumstances that are yours in heaven. Not in this world, not in your circumstances of this world, but your circumstances are the gospel of Jesus Christ that are rooted and secured forever in heaven in Christ Jesus. That's why you can rejoice in all circumstances. But, and this is significant, that is not the only reason why Paul rejoices. That's not the only reason why Paul kind of describes, uh, gives, gives for his reason for rejoicing. Actually, if you think about it in Philippians 1, Paul says that he finds joy in his circumstances. It's not just that he is above his circumstances, but he also says, I rejoice in my circumstances. I am rejoicing because where I am right now in life. I'm rejoicing because I have this Roman guard chained to me right now. Would you like to know his spiritual secret? A few snapshots. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And I rejoice in that. Right there in that little verse, with that little phrase, what has happened to me, Paul completely summarizes everything that has occurred between Acts 21 all the way through 28 and then into his four-year prison sentence. He's summarizing all of that in that little word, nondescript phrase, what has happened to me. It's almost like he doesn't want to focus on what has happened to him. Mobs, mistreatments, murder attempts, shipwrecked, four years, house arrest, all of it. That's what's happened to him. How does Paul talk about his circumstances? Well, with joy, but I would like to quote from H.B. Charles on this, who says this, Paul wasn't concerned about what happened to him as what happened to what happened to him. Now, he can say that a whole lot better than I can. But let me read it one more time so you hear it. Paul wasn't concerned about what happened to him as what happened to what happened to him. What's going on there? Paul's life was tied up in the advance of the gospel. We see him describing that in 13. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Wherever Paul moved, the gospel was moving. Because Paul was always about the advance of the gospel. Paul counted the advance of the gospel as his greatest joy. That's why he could rejoice in all circumstances. It was his delight to see it move forward. And notice what he says in in 22 of chapter 1. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Regardless of how Paul's life was going, Paul was always pursuing the advance of Christ in Christ's church and 
in Christ's future church. And he could even count every circumstance as an avenue of pursuing that. Why? Verse 21. To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is a hint at our contentment definition. You can have contentment in any circumstance, in any situation, when your purpose in that situation is to advance the glory of Christ. Because every circumstance is giving you an opportunity to believe the gospel, repeat the gospel, and spread the gospel. In fact, Paul is so convinced of Christ's unstoppable work, he can rejoice even in painful circumstances because nothing can stop the gospel ministry. Nothing. No chains can stop the gospel ministry. Nothing stops the word of God. In fact, as you see over and over again in Acts, the more they try to stop it, the worse it spreads. This is not just an application for the church planter or the the missionary or the pastor. Notice this is this is an exhortation by Paul for, for even you to join with him in how you focus your life, how you orient your life, how you think about your life. If if you live a life that counts joy in gospel opportunities, you will never live a life without joy. Because you will never live a life without opportunities. Now some of you are saying, Pastor David, you don't understand my circumstances. I happen to be a parent of a high school student. This is impossible. This is too hard. There is no joy in this. Well, if you are a parent, sorry, I'm a youth pastor here. If you are a parent of a high school student, you also have no end of opportunities to advance the gospel. I'm not just talking about evangelism opportunities. I'm talking about all sorts of opportunities to speak about the implications of the truth of the gospel in the day-to-day life. You have no end of opportunities. And that's just one example of mine of how all of life can be oriented around this focus on helping others and one another focus on the truth of Jesus Christ. As Paul Tripp would say, it's not an age to dread, it's not an age to groan, but because of Jesus, even high school ministry is an age of opportunity. Sorry, that's just because I'm a youth pastor. A wise love can view even the most challenging of circumstances with joy because its mind and eyes are trained through love and wisdom to see what Jesus is up to all the time. A wise love sees it. It has circumstantial joy because it can always pursue the advance of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to our next point. A wise love means, secondly that you have a humble focus. You have a humble focus. Listen up, this, this section is very significant, and I wouldn't want to skip it. It is the heart of the letter, and we must make sure we are grounded here. How? How do you have a humble focus? Paul would tell us, number one, you have the same aim. We already read verse 27 of chapter 1, but but notice it again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one faith, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You have the same aim. Your your life purpose is this, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The word there, let your manner of life be worthy, uh, could be translated, 
be a worthy citizen of a city. And it is interesting to me that Paul uses this word because the Philippians would have understood this, particularly in their city. Philippi greatly prided itself and cared about their Roman citizenship. They were a Roman city, as we saw in Acts 16. They threw Paul and Silas in jail because they were afraid that the Romans would be upset that they were breaking Roman law in verse 21 of Acts 16. And then in Acts 16.39, they begged Paul and Silas to leave the city as quietly as they can without complaint because they were afraid that the Romans would hear how they treated Roman citizens. The, the city of Philippi and the church of Philippi understood what it meant to walk worthy. It meant to be worthy citizens. It was a city eager to show its obedience, eager to show its Romanness, its purpose was this. What does one mind mean, though? It doesn't mean we're robots with the same thoughts as much, but it means we're people with the same purpose and aim, the same goal. We aren't to be here as the church seeking our own ambition, but we're here to be seeking the ambitions of Christ Jesus and to be walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how you have a humble focus. You have the same aim. We're going in the same direction. But also have a humble focus by uh, reminding yourself of what you really deserve. You need to turn your thinking upside down. You deserve none of the things that come your way because of the gospel of Jesus Christ says in 2 Timothy 2.25 that even repentance has been granted to us. I don't deserve any of the rich graces that I receive in Christ Jesus. But notice what Paul says. Not only that, you have a mind that also says, I don't even deserve the sufferings that come my way because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, he also says, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should uh, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. How can you do that? Because you know what you really deserve. I don't deserve any of the things that come my way because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You also have a humble focus by having the mind of Christ. And this gets us into the glorious riches of chapter 2. Chapter 2, 3 through 4 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only at his own interests, but also at the interests of Christ. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the mind of Christ that should cause deep humility in us. How do you show this mind? Well, just meditate on the mind of Christ for a second verse 6, says that he who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. The verb was there is a unique verb. It emphasizes continual existence. He was continually in the form of God. And the word form there doesn't just mean he was resembling God. 
in some external mode or form or appearance. Uh, Notice he was continually existing in equality with God. So this wasn't just some outer representation, look-alike like God. He was continually existing equally to God. Here, form though means that he enjoyed the full outward manifestation of his entire divine nature. This is how Christ Jesus existed continually before Bethlehem. He fully showed off all of his divine essence. He was inwardly and outwardly fully God and fully equal with God. In eternity past, the Son of God is seen this way. This is what we see in John 1.1. 1, 1. It says this about the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Equal with God and God Himself. And John goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 14 of his Gospel, And this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is where we get back to Philippians 6, where it says this extraordinary phrase about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped here means to hold tightly to something. Often it is used to speak of something uh, that is held too tightly in selfishness. But that's not what we see here necessarily. And we have here an irony in the picture of Christ. Christ could have clung to His eternal pre-incarnate state and been perfectly righteous and holy and worthy of your praise. He could have. He could have grasped onto that and been God, worthy of all praise, and judged all sinners. He would have been righteous and holy to do that. But he didn't. And think about what this means for you. You are saved by Christ because he did not think like you would have. Matter of fact, if He who had every right to grasp what he didn't to serve and to save you. You have no right to grasp any rights that you think belong to you to serve yourself. Because he did not. Matter of fact, it says in verse 7 that he emptied himself Just a little bit of grammatical description here. Emptied here is the main verb, which is followed by several subordinate verbs that describe what emptied mean. So we don't have to be confused. I'll translate it for you. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By being born in the likeness of men by being found in human form. It's describing what emptied means. And therefore, we can conclude this. It's not that Jesus necessarily uh, gave up being God or emptied himself of his divine attributes, as liberal theologians would like to conclude. There is this theory out there, the kenosis theory, talking about how Jesus emptied himself of all but love. And it's really presented by them to, in in their words, in their minds, save Jesus from his erroneous view of the Old Testament. Believing in a historical Adam, Jesus must have emptied himself of some divine knowledge there. But that's not true. This is not a story of Superman who, in love with Lois Lane, empties himself of all of his superpowers to be with her. This is not a story of the little mermaid, who, in love with Eric the Prince, empties herself of all of her voice to be with him. This is a story of Jesus Christ, 
who, in becoming fully man, willingly chose to temporarily set aside the external display of his divine nature and temporarily set aside his right and his prerogative to show his glory to people. Why? So that he could be found in the form of a servant. Be born in the likeness of men and be humbled to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't cease to be God in this time because if he would have ceased to be God, he wouldn't be God. But he ceased for a time to demand to be recognized as God. He gave up his rights. He made himself a nobody. And note it, it wasn't just a nobody. It wasn't just any nobody. It was a nobody of the lowest possible station. A crucified criminal on the cross. It was subtraction by addition. He took mankind into himself. As the Athanasian as the nation creed is helpful here, the incarnation isn't explained as a conversion of Godhead into flesh, but by taking the manhood into God. It was subtraction by addition. Don't you see this? Don't you see how this applies to your humble focus? Pride, demanding your own rights, demanding to be served, is a gross sin for the Christian because of who did not grasp what he should have to serve you. You must have a humble focus by having the same aim, by reminding yourself of what you really deserve, by having the mind of Christ. And, And we could add another part here, by being bold in sanctification, but we won't take too long on this. Verse 12 through 13 says this, Paul says in response to all this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How do you respond to this? You respond to this with bold sanctification. Notice it is with fear and trembling, yes, because you are serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But it is also bold because as verse 13 says, it is God who works in you both to work and to will his good pleasure. And then in the remaining portion of Philippians 2, Paul gives you three examples of a humble focus to really cement that idea into your head. First, it's Paul himself who lived his entire life, as we've seen, to serve others and to serve Christ. And then he also describes Timothy, his fellow worker. Notice what he says about Timothy in verse 20. I have no one like him who will, genuinely, uh, who is, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. This is who Timothy was. He was like Paul. Or Epaphroditus. He brought Paul's gift from the church and even got sick in the process. Notice how Paul describes him. He says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such a man, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service to me. He was so humble in his focus that he was willing to suffer and risk his life to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you count it all joy to be in humble service to others, you will never lack for opportunities of joy. Because you will never lack for opportunities of humble service. This is instructive, again, because this is coming from Paul in prison. You can find opportunities to serve anywhere. You can find opportunities to pursue and advance the gospel anywhere, even when you are chained. Because we serve a God who is powerful and 
is prayed to. But let's move forward. And I, but I do want you to see how this all fits together. You can only have point one, circumstantial joy, if you first have point two, a humble focus. And now watch this. A humble focus leads to everything else in the letter. And this leads to our third point. A, lo- a wise love means you have spiritual maturity, security. Just to make a few notes here, chapter 3 is all about this spiritual maturity, security. It begins in chapter 3, verse 1, with rejoice, and it ends in chapter 4, verse 1, with another repetition of rejoice. And 4.1 actually says, stand firm in this kind of rejoicing. So this kind of summarizes the whole section. You need to stand firm in rejoicing. This is, as he says in 3.1, safe for you. Spiritual and sanctification, security, begin with rejoicing. It means joy in what you have been given in the gospel. And it is also joy in who you are after in your pursuit of sanctification, in your pursuit of Christ-likeness. It is described in joy terms. Do you want spiritual maturity, security? You need to put on joy. Rejoice in what you have been given and rejoice in what you are pursuing in Christ. It's joy in what you've been given. Spiritual security in the gospel you have received. You're not looking for joy in something new or something novel or something that tickles your emotional bone. You are rejoicing in the truth of the gospel. This is, of course, opposite to spiritual self-confidence. Paul describes his own reasons for self-confidence in the beginning of this chapter as a negative example. This is a joy that actually comes from zero confidence in your own spiritual strength or ability. It's 100% trusting in, as it says in verse 9 of chapter 3, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's rejoicing in the righteousness of God alone for your standing before God. It's a joy in what you've been given. But spiritual maturity, security, is also a joy in who you are after. Verse 13, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. This is what spiritual maturity looks like. Verse 14, let's go 12 all the way through 14. Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Notice the mature Christian is pursuing, is laboring, is striving, is earnestly seeking after Christ-likeness. And what's the motivation? Not to gain your justification. Not to gain your justification before God. But as verse 12 says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There are two types of believers that think they are mature, but aren't. The one says, I am mature because I do all of this stuff. That's why God loves me. And another believer maybe thinks they're mature because they don't do anything and they're completely free. But we see something else here in this chapter. We see spiritual maturity, security. We see it's both and in the right order. It's 100% resting in Christ's righteousness alone, and it is 100% 
unresting in the constant quest of Christ-likeness. That is what spiritual maturity, security looks like. So, to have wise love means this. You have circumstantial joy, which comes from a humble focus, which leads to doctrinal security of this spiritual maturity security. And all of this also means that finally, number four, you have situational sufficiency. Situational sufficiency. This is where we've been driving towards the whole time. What does contentment look like? In all circumstances. It means you have sufficiency in every situation and every circumstance in Christ Jesus. Three situations that we see in this chapter. Chapter 4. Three situations in which Christ is proven to be sufficient We see he is sufficient in personal disagreements. Chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Who were these two women? Well, they, they were gospel laborers. They were fellow Christians, and they had some sort of a personal disagreement. In situations of personal disagreement, you ask yourself, you ask yourself, who are you going to think like? Are you going to think like you? Or are you going to put on the humble focus of Christ Jesus? You will only have sufficiency for this situation when you have a heart and a mind that is trained on Jesus. When you have a heart and a mind that is oriented and shaped by Philippians chapter 2. And notice this, it's not just you in a personal disagreement with somebody saying, what would Jesus do? It seems to me that you're really saying, What did Jesus not do? He did not hold tightly to that which he had every right to grasp in order to lay hold on me so that I could pursue him and I could show what a life worthy of the gospel looks like in this situation. That is what the person thinks about when they face personal disagreements and they pray as well. They, they pray to the Lord, Lord, I confess my pride and my sinful desire in this. At the same time, I f- affirm that your forgiveness is for me even right now. But I also request power to work in me power to work in my willing and in my wanting to humble myself towards this person and pursue them in love and in a way that would showcase the glory of the gospel. This, of course, is not rolling over your grave and giving up doctrinal truth for the sake of unity. It is the gospel after which, for which you strive earnestly, but it is personal disagreements. And we see here a second situation of Christ's sufficiency. We see a situation of anxious thoughts. We see him describe this a little bit in 4.4 all the way down through 4.9. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
What's the solution for anxious thoughts? Well, these anxious thoughts perhaps can come from disagreements that you have with others. And the solution, if we were to put it in that lens, in that context, is not to forgive and forget. It's not to ignore. But Paul says you need to put on intentional attitudes and actions if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel and deal with anxious thoughts. Here's the ingredients for God's peace and presence. Side note, did you notice I'm throwing about five sermons at you tonight? It's really easy. Just do one book at a time. Here's here's Paul's ingredients for God's peace and presence. Number one, you choose rejoicing. Verse four is commanded. That means joy is not automatic for the Christian. It is something you seek intentionally. If you don't seek it intentionally, you won't have it. You need to choose joy. You need to set your mind on the things of Christ in every situation. Choose rejoicing. Number two, be small. He says in five, in the beginning of verse five, let your reasonableness, that's humbleness, that's patience even when other people are mistreating you you could say it's graciousness it's willing to be a little bit walked over it's willing to be just just maybe receive not total justice in the situation it's choosing to be small remember why you can do this it's because verse uh, verse 29 of chapter 1 says you you know what you really deserve You know that anything that comes your way because you're pursuing the gospel, you do not deserve. But why small? Why do I use that word small? Well, small people are impossible to offend. I'm a tall person. I'm easy to offend. But small people are hard to offend, right? Small people, I'm talking about their attitudes and how they think about themselves. Small people aren't hanging on to every single comment about them because they're small. They're not thinking about themselves. Small people also are made small because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of Philippians 2. In their mind, they are small about themselves because of how Christ Jesus has laid hold on them. You say to yourself, I was saved because Christ Jesus chose to be treated small and suffer and die a shameful death to save me. How can I be big in this moment? How can I be easily offended in this moment? Small people are continually reminding themselves of what they deserve. And they're saying, nothing I receive in Christ I deserve. But also these people who deal with their anxiety think prayerfully. You see this in verse 6. In everything. In everything. I love that. Because the Spirit of God gets around all of my little loopholes that my heart wants to make. Well, this is not a situation that I could pray about. This is beyond me. But the Spirit of God says, you need to, in everything, let your requests and prayer and supplication with thanksgiving be made known to the God of the universe. And I also love how he adds in there, with thanksgiving prayer in its very act will change your whole entire mind and orientation of your life about a certain circumstance even the hardest ones prayer is the opposite of anxiety but you also need to think truthfully verse 8 paul goes into this list that begins with true and of course that's referring to biblical truth you see in verse 9 that he describes it as something you have received so it's not just truth in you but it's biblical truth of some sort biblical truth is the first on this list for a reason as well because all of these things that you choose to set your mind on flow out of biblical truth i ask students this you want to know who you are it's how you think As the person thinks, so that person is. I can tell how you think by how you live. And I tell students, do you ever wonder why your mom seemed to know what you're thinking at all times? Because they're watching how you're living. 
Your living is a reflection of your thinking. That is why dealing with anxiety is dealing with your thinking and putting in thoughts of truth and kicking out thoughts of error. You think truthfully. And then finally, you follow the best examples. You see that in verse 9. Not just anyone. You follow good examples. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And notice what the result is. It's both verse 7 and it's verse 9. It's the peace of God and it's the God of peace. You have the peace of God that comes from God's continual abiding presence in your life. So you have situational sufficiency and personal disagreements and anxious thoughts, but all of that leads to complete contentment. Chapter 4, verse 10. We won't be long. 10 all the way through 20. It is fascinating to me that Paul, at this point of the letter, finally really describes his situation. It's instructive, right? You know money's not the problem when it's not the first thing out of your mouth. And Paul waits until chapter 4 to even talk about his own true situation. The lesson of this section is revealed to us in 4.13 and 19. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he also says to the Philippians, as you follow my example in verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As you live a life that pursues the gospel of advance and sets your joy in the advance of the gospel, you will have all sufficiency in your life because your God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. Verse 13 is popularly interpreted, God will supply all my greeds. But that's not what it's about. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not talking about greeds here, that God will give him a better arm in throwing the football. God will give him a faster sports car. I can use it, Lord, as a ministry tool. (laughs) Paul is talking about the sufficiency that we have in Christ that makes us able to rejoice in the hardest of circumstances because we are living a life oriented towards the advance of the gospel. Even in prison, even when deserted by, quote, friends, Paul is completely content because his joy is wrapped up in the gospel. And he is saying to his gospel partners, this is yours as well. Complete contentment. What does it look like? It's, it's a wise love about everything you want and need. 12 through 13 talks about this. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice it's not I have everything I want, but it is I have everything I need. Can you think like that? Do you think like that? Look at the promise. Look at the promise that comes to a life that thinks like this. Verse 19. It's not saying that God will give you what you need out of His rich glory. It is saying that God will give you everything you need according to his riches and glory. For example, if Elon Musk were to give you cash out of his wealth, he could give you $10. That'd be out of his wealth. 
But if Elon Musk gives you riches according to his wealth, this means he will abundantly provide for you to show off how great his wealth is. And this is the point that Paul is making. God gives us what we need in line with his purposes to show off the riches and the wealth of his provision for us. This is transformational. When you start living this way with a wise love about why you're here and what you need to accomplish that end, that changes your life. And it will also change what you need. Notice that. Paul seems to be saying he is completely content because everything he has has become everything that he needs. I have everything that I need to pursue the advance of Christ. I am well cared for. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How do you have joy and contentment in hard circumstances? It begins in what you believe It's a belief that God will give you everything that you need in that situation to do what you're called to do. It's a belief that God has you in that exact situation for His purpose. It's a belief also that in any situation you can find a jump-off point to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a belief that every spiritual resource that you need to pursue His glory will be given to you as you continue to obey Him. In short, this is exactly what Jesus told us in in Matthew 6.33, right? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's define contentment. Christian contentment. It's saying this, Christ's purposes, His condescending sacrifice, and His condescending provision are everything I need for joy in this life. That is what contentment is. All that I have in Christ is all that I need to walk in a manner worthy of of the gospel let's pray dear god in heaven i thank you so much for this precious letter i thank you for opening it up to us and graciously giving it to us and i prevail and i plead with you that you would provide for what we need in our mind and in our heart and in our strength to pursue your glory and your gospel's advance wherever we go and in whatever situation we face Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.